welcome to AMO Kenzoku, episode 22. We are a group of four bubblegum crisis boomer otaku who wanted an excuse to talk about anime, manga, and any other related things we find interesting. The Kenzoku are Nick. Hello. Mike. Hey, y'all. Dylan. Hi. And myself, Sam. Uh, this episode is being recorded on December 15th, 2022. Um, and today we're talking about uh, Megazone 23, Part 1, uh, which came out in 1985, to March 9th, 1985, which I believe is the considered the second OVA after birth. Um, oh, there was Dallas before that. I'm about to say, isn't Dallas considered the first? Oh, yeah, okay, I don't know. I'm guessing I was just going by what we watched, but okay, so just Dallas, and then this, so this is three. Um, oh, there apparently were some others, but they I'm not sure how many of them. Like, there was... Uh, most of them were hentai. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, so we can get into that, I guess. Um, so this uh, production had a pretty, like, it wasn't originally planned as an OVA. It was more of a necessity based on how production went. Mike, do you want to explain what you know of that? Well, it was supposed to at least somewhat be a follow-on to Mospita or something like that, at least. It went through a bunch of names. It was originally pitched as Omega City 23, and it was kind of post-apocalyptic setting with a contemporary-ish city and transforming motorcycles and set more future-ish, I think, than where, as opposed to being hard in 1985, like the Megazone 23 we ended up with. Well, hard mm-hmm. 1985 for reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I watched a um, when I was searching for uh, animator uh, cuts. I wanted to see, you know, different who animated what in the show um, on YouTube. I stumbled upon our pal Mercury Falcon, who did the video about Bubblegum Crisis that we all watched with the kind of the history of that production. He had some interesting things to say that basically says the same things, except I guess. He claimed that the origin of um, Megazone 23 was actually a discarded plotline from Macross. Do you remember Love, I think? Where they had planned this kind of thing where, I I guess, Min May gets kidnapped and is replaced with a hologram or something like that. Hmm. Um, Was he saying saying that that was supposed to be like, that was like an alternative, like whole plot of the, of Do You Remember Love or like a subplot or something? I think it was like a subplot huh. that they scrapped. Um, I'm not giving you this 100% real because, I mean, you know, I'm not, I didn't memorize that thing, but the, the gist of it was, yeah, it was a, some part of the plot to the movie, but then they they threw it out for whatever reason. Uh, maybe he said, I don't remember. But then they went through these iterations of, yeah, whatever, what was it, Omega, Omega something, uh, Omega City. Yeah, Omega City 2, 23, and then, why am I drawing a blank. Anyway, it was called something else, and then Omega Zone 23, and then they dropped the O and just made it Mega Zone 23. <laughs> and the 2-3, of course, is a reference to the 23 special wards of Tokyo. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't I, figure out what I the 2-3 was. I actually didn't was. know that. Oh, oh today I learned. Well, that makes uh, a lot more was... sense now. <laughs> yeah, it's not just complete nonsense. <laughs> It's only half not that. Oh, thanks, mm-hmm. Sensei Mike. <laughs> uh, I heard that, so it was going to be a TV series. Um, it was supposed to pick up the Mospita slot, and then they there was a, a sponsor pulled out at the last minute. Um, and so from what I heard, and this is, again, I'm going borrowing heavily from Mercury Falcon's video, but he claimed that, like, as part of promoting this thing to... to advertisers and, and TV stations or whatever, they, they animated a bunch of stuff to start with. Um, you know, a bunch of action scenes, stuff that looks cool to promote it. Um, and then when they got their TV slot cut, they were like, well, we have all this animation. 
let's put it together into an OVA and then just put that out ourselves um, instead of putting it out on TV. Which, when I heard that, explained a lot about some of the stuff in it. Uh, the pacing it especially. It really does. Yeah. It, which, the animation in this thing was really um, phenomenal. I, I, I think you guys would agree with that. Um, you? <laughs> yeah, I think I mentioned it in the uh, previous episode, uh, the birth episode, like I cannot believe this was made only a year after birth because the jump in quality is exponentially better, in my opinion. Like the overall, every ass, all the art assets, right, are high quality. Like you look at scenes mm-hmm. where there's tons of you know people and you know hubbub in the background. It's all drawn immaculately and consistently, and it flows very well. It, it helps that the uh, the the cleanup and the digital transfer for that was done by. Um, uh animego was like i mean i mean chef's kiss like this is one of the most beautifully cleaned up 80s era anything i've ever seen so yeah it was really good i mean the bubblegum crisis one is also really good so i don't know i feel like this beats bubblegum crisis really as far as the claim in my opinion i don't know i'd have to Mm. go side by side but it was i i remember thinking when i started watching megazone I immediately thought, wow, I didn't realize it could look this good. Where when I watched Bubblegum Crisis, I definitely noticed it was cleaned up, but I still kind of was less impressed overall. So, I wonder if it was like a 16 millimeter versus like 35 millimeter or whatever, you know, like the film stock was, was mm. larger. Yeah, Megazone was 35 millimeter. People have oh, said okay. that. Ah. Um, though it's interesting seeing you say cleaned up and making me wonder how much DNR was done for streaming because I was noticing a lot of cell dirt and other things on the Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, that's entirely possible because, I mean, I feel like out of, I feel three of the four of us probably watched it on Retro Crush and then Mike, you're probably the only one that physically owns it. Yeah, that's yeah, correct. Retro Crush for me. Um, and as a, just as a quick thing here, if anyone doesn't watch it, it is up on Retro Crush and it looks really nice. The only caveat is it's the closed caption subs, but it still is oh, like yeah. a good translation. You just get cool extra things like it saying Mecha Womp Womp. <laughs> yeah. or, or getting together music. Oh, yeah, getting together yeah, no, getting music. Getting to know each other Getting music. to know each other, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's very specific. <laughs> uh, Whereas the DVD containing parts 1, 2, and 3 is available from Animago for 40 bucks. DVD or Blu-ray or, or both? Blu-ray, sorry. Blu-ray. Uh, as I said i'm not the most with it today <laughs> i mean i i believe that either you know is still purchasable so yeah yeah i just the, the price of, yeah of no only dvd is be pretty high yeah it's blu-ray the dvd was released by adv films way back when i do have those too yeah i got those in like a right stuff bargain bin sale and... i think they looked pretty good for something so old at the time, but definitely not as nice as a brand new film scan in HD. Back with bad mine is unopened. Back with the uh, with the art stuff. Like watching this after watching Birth, I just like I felt so bad for you, Nick, having to like watch this and then go back to watch Birth. I'd be like, oh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this is Imagine so the nice. complete and utter shock when I'm like, oh no, I watched these out of order. I got to go watch Birth, and I'm like, oh my. God, what am I watching? Because yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, Birth it is interesting for Sakaga fans and has some interesting animation, but you can see why Megazone 2 3 made the impact it did when it came out. Right, like in every dimension, right? Plot, even as flawed as it is, we can get into that later, but like plot, animation, you know, all of it, continuity, just it, it, every element was, in my opinion, titanically better than birth maybe the only thing about birth i still have a pretty unhealthy attachment to that opening you know chase scene just because i love all the various angles and cuts they do i really just adore that but other than that Mm -hmm. i think it was a complete train wreck comparatively but but yeah um it's it's real easy on the eyes like i i don't think if you showed it you know blind to somebody who had no idea what it was and tried to have them guess the era i would say a lot of people may not may assume it was maybe even made in the early 90s just because of how clean the current transfer is. So, Yeah. Dylan, were you trying to say something? Uh, no, other than um, it's, yeah, it is, it is one of the best animated things, and it, it really does look like a continuation of Do You Remember Love in part one because you just get so many of the 
Mikimoto special character designs and they're just drawn so well in there throughout. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't think I have a bad thing to say about any of the art animation production, anything like I love the, I love the music in it as well, which is, mm-hmm. uh, I actually, I meant to look, I meant to look it up, but then I was curious if this really was like Shiro Sagisu's like first major work. Uh, hmm. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, going through the credits of this thing, I noticed that there were um, a number of surprising names in this thing, although I shouldn't have been surprised based on the time period. But um, our good friend Hideaki Anno uh, did a lot of animation in this thing. Uh, well, a... Apparently his 15 cuts took him like three months. So, Oh, <laughs> my gosh. believable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, his particle effects, man. Oh. Yeah, no one animates particle effects like Anna. Literally best in the business still to this day. I can't think of anybody who's who puts in the amount of labor that he he did and still does. Yeah, these days you do it all just, you know, do all the effects of CG, right? To yeah, I know. Yeah, in there. yeah, you let you let you let a processor doing billions of calculations a minute, you know, do it for you whereas he's literally using, you know, <laughs> human eye and pure grit to Make it look correct. Another one on here that caught my eye was um, Nobuteru Yuki, uh, Escaflone creator, um, who I always forget was an animator. Uh, and I couldn't find his cuts online anywhere. Uh, yeah, in the Japanese commentary track, someone implied that he asked to do the sexy parts. I don't oh. know if that's <laughs> true or not, but <laughs> that's what they said. <laughs> that, or at that... least that there was a rumor to that effect. <laughs> that's actually kind of surprising, because I don't really associate him with that kind of content. So I would I would have assumed yeah. that was Umetsu who would have done those. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we do associate with that kind of content, and and he's listed as one of the storyboarders. So, right. But as on on, on Sagi Super Second, I can't see anything that is earlier than this, and certainly nothing that was like a full soundtrack. And he comes out blasting with like writing, like it was you know collaboration to get the songs done. But all the vocal songs are great, and you get that uh, real strong uh as soon as you hear it, you're just like oh this is this is 80s this is 80s sagisu stuff um it's the same excellent music it's not the same but it's similar stuff in kimiga ray orange road which has another incredible soundtrack and oh yeah vocal songs I mean, that he does when I, when I think about like 80s anime osts like core is one of the first yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And this is into my mind. Yeah. And this is like core is just like oh, it's like it's almost like oh, you take the Megazone Shiro Sagasu do it does it again where he took the Nadia soundtrack and kind of twisted and cut in and out and made it better for Eva. It's almost kind of like he did some of the similar stuff and learned more and did some stuff from Megazone going into Kimegore Orange Road. Um, in that they're similar sounding, but. Uh, just like very similar instrumentation stuff and it's it's great i love it um just going through other notable people who worked on this thing um obviously masami obari says it was non-credited here but um i believe it around that time these guys are all kind of in the same place at the same time um ishiguro and aramaki also oh you're gonna say something yeah don't don't forget uh in the in the voice in the voice actor category we have once again maintaining continuity and we have mina tominaga <laughs> in it again as a as a reasonably strong supporting character so just we'll just we'll just make this the mina no mina tominaga and uh, you of course have ichiro itano doing more fantastic animation yes yeah, animation uh, action director he's credited as. Which is yeah, one of the things they said was that for some of the like POV bike scenes, what he did was, according to the Japanese commentary on the Blu-rays, was um, strap a you know his like expensive. I for 
don't know the exchange rate, but then, but like one to two thousand dollar in nineteen eighty five money camcorder because that's what they cost back then to his bike with duct tape because you couldn't get GoPros and he was constantly <laughs> having to replace the GoPros to get you know some POV bike shots for reference. Yeah, because back then, I mean, even even nice like candy cams could probably only record you know tens of minutes of footage, right? Based depending on the tapes. Yeah, like, I'm not sure what the state of camcorders were. They were still pretty new. In the 80s? Absolutely. I mean, I remember, you know, not to sidetrack too far, but, like, my my dad was making pretty good money in the, you know, late 80s, mid-90s, because, you know, he worked at a, in a bubble economy Japanese company. But <laughs> um, yeah. I remember he bought a Sony camcorder like a gen like it was probably like a gen 2 one at that point because he bought it back in like 1990 i want to say you know or maybe like 1989 1990 and i still remember he paid like 2500 usd for that so and it was considered like cutting edge i mean it had these weird proprietary sony tapes so yeah sony's been using proprietary media forever but uh so i can't imagine something back in 84 5 would be able to record yeah, that much like content. Sony introduced the very first beta movie camcorder in 1983, so I'm not sure how many more camcorders would have come out in the time that he would have had to do this for reference before this OVA came out in 80, early 85. I remember when I was growing up, we had a video camera that was um, like a big over-the-shoulder thing that had that took like VHS tapes in it. So it could also have been something like that instead of a compact thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm not talking compact. I mean, camcorders at all date to like 1983. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, I guess what camcorder versus video camera is, I don't, I don't know. When I think of those, I think of compact. Uh, camcorder means that the VCR and the camera are both one unit. Oh, I see. That's opposed a technical term. to what you know, electron pros still were using for a long time where you have a separate VTR and a camera unit connected to it. I see. All right. Sensei Mike learning us about all sorts of things. Yeah, I know. Not history lesson. <laughs> um, and I mean, even those obviously only date to the mid seventies, give or take. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's kind of like the explosion of di- digitization starts happening in the, that end of the seventies into the early eighties. Yeah, like, we're forgetting just how new home video still was at this point, and there's a reason this was uh, such a very early OVA. The other thing that the commentary people were saying was that this probably wasn't originally intended for a rental audience, because video rental stores were still so new, like, your town might have one or two in 85. They were everywhere a couple years later, but they weren't quite everywhere yet. You mean they were more targeted for direct sales? Very possibly. Like, they were still figuring out what the market for this even was at this point. So that's kind of interesting that the sales of, like, OVAs and home stuff was, like, first was to home, and then it shifted to, like, very much primarily for rental, except for the few idiots that overpaid to it <laughs> and then um and then it's kind of feels like it's kind of gone away from the at least i don't I don't really know what japanese but my impression is it's kind of gotten away from the rental and back to the home purchase yeah also the weird thing in japan was compared to the u.s ld was the cheap format because it was still aimed at purchase whereas vhs tended to be more expensive because it was more expensive to produce especially in the early days And because it was where the rental market was. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like, the ADV commentary is a bunch about the dub, but also, like, two of the founders of ADV were talking about how they, you know, had originally, I guess, were friends before that in the mid-80s in, like, an anime group together or something, and they were importing the LDs of anime. And that's how they first saw Megazone. (laughs) So this was pretty key in early American fandom, too, because it was just when it was becoming possible for people in certain urban areas to import Japanese media. And 
the ones in the know were importing LDs because they were like half the cost. Though, which when you were paying a double markup, you know, twice the Japanese price, and the Japanese price was as crazy as it was. That's a yeah. lot in 1985 dollars. True fans only, for sure. Yeah, like it's insane to think of paying like 200 US dollars, give or take, for a VHS tape from Japan in mid 80s dollars. Yeah. And just imagine the work to get it, even in the first place, right? Because you can just go online and order it, or even just calling a place up and ordering it. It's probably pretty hard. Yeah, I mean, if you were in the right places, you started to have in the mid 80s anime magazines though i don't i feel like 85 is still a little early for them i'd have to remember exactly what the when animag started and there were a few other early like fan-ish magazines but i think 85 is still a little early for them also there was the whole cfo cartoon fantasy organization like national anime club that actually was a thing in the 80s and early 90s. Like, it's weird that fandom in some ways was more nationally organized way back when. Hmm. But it makes sense, because then I think the internet kind of took over and Usenet News and people organized sort of through that on one hand and through anime magazines and ads in them and such in the other as more legit releases started to happen. Where, like, this was the, you're watching it raw, if you're lucky... You're probably watching it at a sci-fi con if you don't have crazy people, and if you're lucky, you might get like a paragraph or two blurb about the plot. <laughs> yeah, otherwise you just gawk at the pictures. Um, yeah, and Megazone is very much a title that just gawking at the pictures probably doesn't hurt it that much because the plot is such a mess in some ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's a fair that's a fair point of that. Like we don't really think about that, but yeah, so much when this was coming out was yeah, you you might have been lucky enough to have like someone's partially translated script, but yeah, it was probably just like two paragraphs of plot and then you're watching it and yeah, a lot of the fans were not Japanese speakers either. Or maybe you had one person in the group who knew stuff and they'd try to give a translation, but that's hard to do on the fly, especially for Megazone. So Something like Megazone, yeah, like Megazone and other things like slightly later, like Bubblegum Crisis, where it's like, even if you don't have a good script with it, you can still follow along and it still looks awesome. And you're like, well, this is great. Yeah, which um, that's a good point to segue into talking about the plot. But just before we do that, I did want to ask, did you guys uh, notice that the subliminal Easter egg single frame thing when you were watching it. No, no. There's like a in the later part of the the of the show movie. I don't know the the OVA. Um, there's a part where Shogo is fighting people um in the mech and he like attacks a guy in his mech and there's like a effect that it plays and for one frame of it, it switches to uh what i'm a, a picture of what i'm assuming is like yui in a bathing suit the, the main female character huh i like when i saw that i saw something flash and i was like wait is that like something completely different and so like i went through to try and figure out if i see if i could find it i i didn't catch that but i did i don't remember exactly the timestamp. i want to say it's early on like 15 minutes ish in but there was very clearly a uh, a couple of police officers who were, in my opinion, heavily oh. inspired by Lupin yes. and Jigen. Like, it was pretty obviously Lupin and Jigen. Inspired. Oh, it was absolutely yeah. obviously Lupin and Jigen. Both commentaries noted that, too, because yeah. it's so obvious. Yeah, it, I, it was early in, but I was just like, oh, yeah. There was, I mean, that's no surprise when that era Lupin was, is, you know, all-time classic. So even at, yeah. that, at that stage, oh, huh, yeah, there there it is. Huh. So there's li this is literally one frame. Yeah, it's literally a single frame in mm. there. Like he bonks a guy over the head, and you see this as like one part of that kind of bonk animation. See, that's the that's the part about this makes this great because like that is like it's a it's a yeah frame of yeah kind of 
almost without the bunny girl, but bunny without the ears, but bunny girl looking of the the main girl mm-hmm. at uh, one hour twenty, just before one hour twenty one. But that's such a great thing because it's a really I will nice have to drawing. Hunt that down. It's a really nice drawing. Again, yeah, mm-hmm. it is like that. And that frame took yeah. somebody a, a, a meaningful amount of time to draw. Yeah, I think that I think that frame almost sums up the art quality of the thing. You're like, yeah, here's here's an Easter egg that someone threw in for a frame, and it's not just like some garbage chibi thing. It's actually like really nicely done. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder what the what the story is behind that. Like, there's got to be a little bit more to it because. I don't see any plot connection. Like I, I tried to think of something and I couldn't come up with anything. So like somebody decided they wanted to do this, I guess. Like, and I mean, film it didn't care. Like, I feel like maybe, you know, this might be the origin uh, this is me totally, you know, tinfoil hat, but you know, it's a pretty common thing from, for, I want to say nineties to early aughts anime, where when somebody gets like whacked on the head, you hear that bonk noise, you see a immediate, you know, single, like a handful of frames of something, you know, else, like, either, you know, like, super chibi-fied versions of them, like, you know, with, like, X's for eyes or something like that. Mm-hmm. I wonder if maybe sure. that this particular cut, them doing that, kind of inspired that trend, because can we, I can't, can, I can't think of a show or any anime property doing, using that gag, so to speak, you know, before, much earlier than this. I mean, there's not a lot of stuff that came out before this but you know maybe some maybe maybe would say yatsura but i i can't say that's definitely more of a mic thing so yeah i don't recall offhand but i i wonder if this is like maybe the first like chronologically the first time somebody used that the gimmick where when somebody's getting whacked on the head they have a, like a single frame or you know a, a, just a split second of of mm-hmm. something else happening because it's literally just the it's yui just like going yeah with <laughs> with yeah. stars so yeah yeah, it, it, that's totally possible. We should uh, corner some people who worked on it. Ask them if they. Oh yeah, I'll just this. I'll just call up I'll just call up Ando and ask him. You know, that's yeah, totally. Just have him speed dial. Uh, cool. All right. Well, so we'll move on to here to the the plot here, which was. Uh, well, if we want to talk plot, I do have the Bacon eighty six Japanese animation program guide. So if you want to know what you would have known about the plot. Watching it at a sci-fi con in the day. Oh, yeah, read that. Read I, I think it, please. I think that's the best awesome. way to go about it. Yeah, I agree. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't want to just sit here for ten minutes reading out of it, but it's, it's about a... one page. Um, okay. While out riding and raising hell, Shogo bumps into Yui, a professional dancer. Despite an unpromising beginning, Shogo manages to get her phone number. That night, he and his friend go out with a couple girls, Mai and Tomomi. While Yui works at the TV studio, after Shogo drops off his date, he goes to meet his friend Shinji, who has asked Shogo to see him. Shinji has been working as a test rider for, well, that's what he wants to tell Shogo about. Shogo is stupefied by the motorcycle Shinji has borrowed, a make Shogo has never heard of, Bahamod. Meanwhile, Shinji's erstwhile employers have tracked him down and don't want anyone talking. In the ensuing gunfight, Shinji is killed and Shogo escapes with the Bahamode, to the great displeasure of the bad guys. Shogo's friend suggests that he return the bike, but he's convinced that he would be killed if he tried, and refuses. He contacts Shinji's company and is eventually told that Shinji has gone to America for a few months. Yui lives with Maya and Tamimi, as Shogo finds out when he finally phones her. He tells her about the bike and says he's going to phone the Eve Information Show and go public with the bike's existence. He tries to do so, but when asked his name, he fumbles and blurts out, Ah, Bahamod 6. This causes the censorship computers to bump the program off the air, unbeknownst to Shogo. Eve continues to talk to him as if they're still broadcasting, keeping him occupied until he can be caught. When they finally catch up to him, he proves to be a force to be reckoned with, and Shogo discovers just how unusual the bike really is. Afraid to go home, he phones Yui and asks to store the bike at her place. Once there, she tells him that none of his conversation with Eve was broadcast. Yui says she can't afford to live alone, so she shares her place with Maya Rocksinger and Tomomi, a film director. Shogo and Yui go for a walk in the park, finding out about each other. She invites him to watch her work, but ends up leaving him and going to a hotel with an influential producer. Shogo hears the name of the hotel and follows them there. Using the bike's sophisticated surveillance gear, he spies on Yui, discovers what's going on, and rescues her, for which she's only half grateful. I was going to get the lead role in his next movie. I bet, sneers Shogo. 
Tomomi talks to Shogo and reveals her plan to make a movie starring Yui Shogo and the bike. He figures that's an ideal way to publicize the bike, and they head out to scout locations. Naturally, the bike and Shogo's uh, enthusiastic riding attract the attention of the police, and while escaping them, the bike triggers a secret elevator. They're carried down, then as gravity changes direction... Exclamation point. The elevator flips over, carrying them up. Their destination proves to be a city beneath the city, largely composed of a huge supercomputer, Bahamut. Shogo tells Tomimi to leave, then sets out to find some answers. He travels to the heart of Bahamut, which is freezing cold due to the near-absolute zero temperature of the superconducting memory, and is soon fighting for his life, both in the underground city and in space? Getting one of the soldiers, BD, at his mercy, Shogo demands some answers, but doesn't like the ones he gets. It seems they're all living in a giant spacecraft. Bahamut is the computer that controls all aspects of the city's operations, and that includes the lives of the inhabitants. For 500 years, using mind-controlled techniques via television, etc., Bahamut has kept the civilians in the upper city blinded to the fact that they're living in a generation ship. But the soldiers in the undercity have always known, and they've fought a subtle war to gain control of Bahamut. The end of that 500-year struggle is inside and just in time. Though they have been lucky, the years of peace are over for the denizens of Megazone 2-3. The enemy has tracked them down and will arrive at any time. The army has been preparing and building up weaponry, but soon they'll need recruits from the civilians. If they control Bahamut, they control the civilians. Shogo's furious to learn of all the deceptions, but really doesn't know what to do. He spares BD and returns to the surface city. That night, Tomomi outlines her plans for the Mugi, movie, Shogo bitterly suggests the plot concerns humans who are living inside a huge spaceship controlled by a computer called Bahamut. We discover that BD is actually of rather high rank, and as the army programmers approach total control of Bahamut, he plans to overthrow the current leaders of the military. Hoping that Eve can help him, Shogo sneaks into the TV studio, but discovers she's merely a computer simulacrum produced by Mahamud. Frustrated, he gets on the phone and manages to get in contact with BD. Again, he threatens to go public. Just try it, he is told. Mahamud contacts him in the guise of Eve and asks for help. Eve tells Shogo that 500 years ago, in the late 20th century, aliens invaded Earth. Some people managed to escape in huge generation ships. Succeeding generations were kept in the dark using recent developments in computer simulations, sophisticated brainwashing techniques, etc. about the realities of their situation, and they were frozen into the 20th century, never advancing. Help me, Eve cries, they're invading me, but what can Shogo do? Shogo finally tells Yui everything, but as he does that, and other things, ahem, the army takes over Bahamut and begins brainwashing the civilians into a more martial frame of mind. The time has come, and BD leads his coup, even as the enemy from Kira Planet finally attack. Shogo's last hopes of an expose are shattered when Tomomi is, Tomomi is sanctioned by the New Order. Furious, he sets out to destroy Bahamut, but it's a hopeless gesture. He fights BD and is soundly beaten, but his life is spared. Mai, destroyed by Tomomi's death, goes back to her father, a high government official. Yui, her world changed forever by recent events, can only watch her leave and wonder what the future holds for her and Shogo. Editor's note, following immediately will be Megazone 23 Part 2, or see it on Monday at 4.30 p.m. Whew, nice job. <laughs> wow. Huh. That's so, a- yeah. Oh. That's so a- if you went to a good sci-fi con, you actually got a not horrible plot summary. I can say, yeah, that's pretty detailed. That that's covers pretty comprehensive, actually. It's very comprehensive. Well, that was Torin Smith's guide for Bacon 86 that eventually ended up getting sold as a standalone product after the con. What do you so. mean the guide did? Yes. Huh. So let's talk about that plot. Um, <laughs> yeah, that plot. <laughs> the, the guy meets, Shogo meets his friend who has this secret motorcycle. And he's like, hey, I just want to show you this cool thing I got, but it's secret. Like, what? Who does that? His friend. Yeah, yeah. who, who, who immediately friend. dies afterwards. So Yeah. yeah. You know. And then Shogo, okay. Shogo takes it and he's like, oh man, this thing's going to get, I already saw some, one person get killed for this thing. I'm going to get killed. Hey, a girl I just met, can I shove this thing in your garage? Is that cool? <laughs> And, yeah, and, right. And, like, and and that was not a euphemism <laughs> for sex, by the way. He actually just asked to park it in the garage in her apartment complex, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you give him one thing. He ne- he never had he never had any euphemism for sex. It was always exceedingly direct. Yeah, quite over actually. <laughs> bo- bo- borderline kind of yeah, not 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 so great. <laughs> no, he was not. He was not good. He was not a likable character at no, all. <laughs> he was he was kind of kind of a jerk face, and yeah, that whole. That whole love scene was really awkward to watch, honestly. Yeah, right? So, like, just to explain that a little bit more, 
as as Mike called it uh, at other times, the, the sex position scene where they like just fill in explaining stuff while they're getting it on, right? Like a very lengthy sex scene. Yeah, like uncomfortably <laughs> totally long. Like it was yeah. really un- It was about honestly probably minutes longer than. I mean, honestly, it doesn't need to be. Shouldn't be more than you know moments. But yeah, they made it minutes long. So that was. Well, if you're gonna yeah, make that, an OVA and move, well. you're gonna make an OVA and move some LDs. Uh, you gotta you gotta have some content on there. Yeah, which I, I think was part of the production thing is that they felt like they needed to because the as Mike referenced earlier, like the the market for uh, OVAs uh, until recently was mostly just porn stuff. So mostly just the hentai anime. Those what people were used to. Though even then, like. That early hentai, some of the cream lemon stuff was also notable for being like having decent production values and actual plot. I forget the precise one. I think it might be Pop Chaser or something, but there's one of them that's actually considered a good anime, though. And then correct me if I'm wrong, especially you, Mike, but wasn't wasn't Aiko originally planned to be part of the cream lemon series? Is that right? I believe so. So and I mean, Echo's. I, I haven't re- rewatched it recently, but if I recall, it was tremendously high production values. So yeah, there was yeah. clearly less of a border between like hentai and not hentai. Then they were still figuring out this whole like, what do we sell people on video? And okay, well, what the boundaries are of what we can do? Right. So kind of with that backdrop, they decided to throw the giant extended sex scene in here and justified it with exposition, which is really ham-fisted and kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, that was... Considering how scattered the plot was in general, given, you know, with Mike's phenomenal um, uh, reading of the the uh, summary there, but even with that, the the sex scene was really incongruous with the rest of the first, of part one, like super incongruous. You could tell that was yeah. definitely a, you know, uh, a decision to throw, toss that in. I, I feel I definitely feel the move, move, uh, yeah. move tapes right because this this wasn't over. It ended up becoming an over when it was originally planned to be TV. So and it's just especially awkward because it basically he just demands it from her, right? <laughs> yeah, kind of goes for it. Yeah, he like, just kind of weird. he kind of just like said we're doing this, and she's like, "Okay, I guess." I'm like, "That, that doesn't that doesn't seem great," but you know, uh, 1980, 84, you know, sensibilities. I guess. I mean, I guess it was already established that she, you know, was planning on sleeping with the director or producer or whatever he was to for a part. So yeah, but that was theoretically going <laughs> to get her something. Like, what's yeah. Shogo going to get her involved in this crazy government conspiracy that might right. get her murdered? Like, yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure what's in it for her exactly here, but was this? I can't remember. Was this after um, uh, Tomomi was killed? No, I no, don't it's before. think so. It's before. It's before. Okay. I have, That's. I, have I think. I think right coming. I think coming back from that escapade was the discovery of Tomomi. I believe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because it's it's inter it's interspersed with the coup by the uh, by the junior military people, um, which I was thinking. I was like, huh, is that where they they go and they take over the government stuff? I'm like, to me, it felt. I don't have. I forget the exact name, but it feels very much like the. Uh, pre-World War II uh, semi-army coup where they came mm-hmm. in and assassinated a bunch of people. Was it the, I forget, it's like the 647 plan or something like that. Um, but I was like, huh, I bet you that was one of those kind of somewhat influenced things. Um, right. As far as cool plot stuff, I really think like the overall kind of like world an idea and stuff with the Eve part is like super cool. And it's one of those things you watch and you're like, Oh, I, I think the, the matrix folks, uh, the Wachowskis, they, they watched this and were, they, I I believe influenced. Yeah. But I, I thought they actually, uh, in in on record have denied that if I recall, even though to me, it seems painfully obvious it was inspired by, I think they actively denied. Well, the reference. I mean, I don't know. Like, I think that's plausible that they wouldn't know, like the idea it of being is. inside of a, like it's it's kind of different here, and that it's not like your your brain is a s- simulation. It's like you're you're in you're a, in a simulated case. world versus yeah yeah. So it's not one to one. 
So yeah, I can I can I can understand that. Another one that I feel like you could definitely say was, uh, you know, certainly certainly people who were involved and um, saw and saw and knew this a lot was uh, Razaphon, because um, that mm. one has a similar thing where the main people they kind of start living inside of Tokyo. This what do they call it? Tokyo Venus, where it's literally Tokyo oh, boy, is this Tokyo completely. Tokyo is a bubble world, like inside of the world that's completely cut off. So it's obviously not the same entirely, but also is the Tokyo City bubble world. Meanwhile, Macross ended with colony ships being sent off, so it's not like it's a total departure from there, though. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I think that connection is not a coincidence, right, as we were talking about earlier. Yeah, it definitely has through lines to Macross and I think Mospita, though I'm not as familiar with the ending to Mospita. Uh, there is a, a piece of media that I think there's no way it, that people didn't know what they're doing, but I don't want to name it because it will spoil it. But there's a there's a game that came out recently that is basically this exact plot, except done better. Um Oh, I think I know what you're. I think I know what you're talking about. It, uh, were we dis- were we discussing this creator recently in our Discord by any chance? Um, it this creator definitely has come up recently in our Discord. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think I know exactly. I haven't completed said game, but I've gotten to points that seem to very much infer these sorts of things. So yeah, I I, I think yeah. Anyway, well yeah <laughs> yeah. Anybody who knows will know what we're talking about. But otherwise, don't worry about it. Um. Also interesting that, like, as this, you know, Macross, Southern Cross, and Mospita got edited into Robotech for better or worse, and then Megazone 2-3 got edited into Robotech the movie, was how it was first released in the U.S., with a bit of Southern Cross footage, removing obviously some of the sex, and adding apparently like seven, eight minutes of new animation to give it a happy ending. New animation, really? Yeah, that supposedly isn't bad, but I haven't actually watched it. I think some of it's in the international cut of Megazone 2-3 Part 2, I think something said, so I'll have to... I don't know, but... From what I remember, this Mercury Falcon video also discusses this, and it's like one of those things that's like lost to time, like you can't... Maybe somebody has a copy somewhere, but um, it was like a Yeah, it was disaster. like released theatrically a few times, like briefly and then largely forgotten yeah it was a crime did you guys notice um certain things like when his when he's getting chased on the highway and the 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 mech first transforms like i didn't even catch that 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 it happened it was kind of weirdly cut together did that seem awkward or did i just like miss something was kind of an awkward transformation it's kind of interesting that apparently transforming like a transforming model or toy version of the garland didn't actually come out for 20 years oh whoa clearly wasn't the most obvious transformation i feel like that whole initial like bike chase scene was just compared to the rest of it especially was not animated all that like tremendously compared like in my opinion i feel like it it looked i agree it looked weird that that entire like bike chase scene it wasn't just the look of it to me it was more like i guess it's kind of like he it transforms and then he doesn't really react at all like it's i mean that was my recollection but that's that's shogo something insane (laughs) happens to him and he's like i don't know i'm just going back to my job mcdonald's i don't know whatever man (laughs) Which he is really proud of, by yeah. the way. The, 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 the world's alive, <laughs> hey. but you know, I'll still do things. And McNuggets are brand new and heavily featured. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the part that seems crazy. It's like he's kind of like, you know, he's working a part-time McDonald's job, and he gets this insane, you know, insane bike that immediately his friend is literally murdered in front of his face for. And he's just like, I don't know, what, what am I supposed to do with this thing? I don't, I don't know. I'm just gonna go to my to my crappy job, and I'm gonna park it in my this girl I know's garage. Who'll let me park it there? Because I don't want it mine. Because I'm gonna get killed. Uh, I don't really <laughs> hang out for hang out for a couple months because it doesn't seem like this takes place over like a day. Like the Soviet, to me at least, feels like it takes place over like at least kind of a few months of like. Yeah, I mean they're filming a movie yeah, at one I part, mean, right? So. And it seems to be pretty well filmed. Like they filmed a chunk of it from what we can tell, so I'm sure it took some time. I mean, 
I guess that goes back to the whole, like, this was originally planned to be a TV series, so there's probably a lot of stuff that's uh, montaged away, right? Also, can we talk about how it's literally McDonald's and not McRonald's or Whackdonald's? Yeah, yeah. I was, I, I actually took a note of that. Like, it was weird. There were tons of brands just mentioned directly in this thing. Um, like especially like our brands named the directly. The point yeah. where they decided not to do that. I, I think Coke. I think Coke was mentioned very early in the first scene when he and his buddy like wrap up and they kick that vending machine and spewing out a bunch of oh, cans. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was all. Yeah. It all said oh, yeah. Coke. So. Well, you know, maybe it was just prescient of like 20 years in the future where product placement is everything. And they're just like, once again, leading the charge of product placement. Well, doing a bad job, right? No free plugs. Almost the opposite. Yeah, it's like they didn't care about giving out free plugs yet because who would pay you to do this anyway? (laughs) Yeah, right. What a crazy idea. I mean, I guess it was already a thing at the time in Hollywood, like see the Reese, famous Reese's Pieces in E.T. Mm-hmm. Well, that was supposed to be M&M's. Right? That's the whole thing. Is M&M's opted to not pay for the the spot, so then Reese's did, and that clearly was a huge misstep because E.T. was like the highest grossing movie of all time for whatever number of years at that point. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. I like that when they go underground for the first time, which I gotta say, that was <laughs> random, yeah, but super cool. Super random. They just um, literally but, like, oops, I just turned down this tunnel, and now yeah. we're in an elevator that takes us to a yep. completely different world, basically. Which, can we talk for a second about how he basically drives full speed into what is a barrier, but then at the last minute, the barrier goes down so he could go inside? Like, what? What was he doing? Did he think, <laughs> like... <laughs> he thought there was Chicken McNuggets on the other side. He had to get that Mac do. I mean, he didn't think. I think that's well established by this yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> but I thought it was interesting that they go, well, not interesting, but kind of hilariously terrible, that they go down, and he's like, knows how to use this machine to turn on the, the scanning capabilities. And right at that moment, the bad guys decide to explain their whole plan. And it's like, oh, okay, how convenient. Really great. There's a lot of stuff like where it's just like, yeah, like how he can conveniently control the robot using the motorcycle controls. Yeah, right. He's very good at it. Which, I mean, I don't know. I guess I can I could give him that one as a gimme because that's kind of like a common thing and and stuff. But boy, with motorcycle, I, he was he made a comment about it when he's fighting near the end, right? About like controlling it with the motorcycle, and I was like, oh yeah, you see him. He's like still holding like the handlebar of the motorcycle to like fight people. Which is kind of yeah. wild. It seems rough. Yeah, yeah, and those robots are awfully expressive for, like, maybe they have better controls. Cause... <laughs> yeah. I think one of the things that I... there's So there's... The setting, I think, is really cool. Like, frankly, the transferring robot part is probably my least favorite kind of thing of the setting. Agreed. Um, and, like... But I also think they definitely didn't, like, pull a punch with the end of it and like they do i think they obviously knew they were going to do a part two but you never know like who knows their production stuff there and like they had him you know get get his get his rocky butt like kicked in the end by vd who's like what are you gonna do you're just a little kid i'm just gonna kick your butt toss you down a pit and then you're gonna be dead or not but i don't care yeah that was an interesting ending like i i kind of liked it um out of all the things that was to me the kind of the most interesting part of the plot is where they were just kind of like happy to not end it i I mean i guess cynically i could just say well yeah they're just gonna leave it open for part two um but i don't know i mean this was a new release model so a part two was certainly far from a guarantee at that point right right so it's a little bit bold um and they certainly didn't ever uh cash that check so we're kind of left with the open-ended ending there well, I mean, it, it clearly, I agree. I think the ending being left open-ended was good. And I do like that he, you know, it was a rude awakening and that he he was certainly not going to single-handedly be able to stop this, right? I mean, he's literally up against mm-hmm. an entire army and he gets completely, again, handled by BD. Yeah, and, you know, his n- like... n- nice new shiny mech bike is, is completely trashed. <laughs> Which, plot-wise too, that's also a nice turn, right? Because he spares bd 
when he first encounters him underground, right? For whatever reason, because you know he doesn't. I don't know. Can't bring himself to kill somebody, right? But then, like, it's like later on he realizes that he should have done it when he had the chance, you know. Um, which is a nice little plot line through it. I mean, I feel like clearly the whole gambit of of trying to, you know, of of having it end that way and not having a part two guaranteed seemed to pay off because I want to say it it this this sold gangbusters, right? Relatively speaking to OVAs, it sold something yeah. in the order of hundreds of thousands of copies, right? Which was unheard of for for a straight to video at that point. Yeah, I don't actually know. How many yeah, I'm by? not sure. I've seen some say hundred thousand plus, and others say like twenty six thousand. But that was a record for that stood for like ten years for OVAs. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and it was like what, like a hundred some bucks, right? So, yeah, I mean, it was probably at least a hundred bucks. Um, what at least what I'm seeing on you know what for what it matters a wiki page is it was priced at seventy eight hundred, so it actually wasn't catastrophically expensive compared to other mm, stuff true. like BGC, this... bgc was in like the 9600 to like 12,000 yeah. range right so uh-huh. yeah that's actually pretty pretty affordable i'm also trying to remember exactly when like sometime in the mid 80s the yen to the dollar dropped pretty dramatically from around 200 to closer to 100 where it stayed nearly ever since and it was somewhere in the like eighty five, eighty six range, so that may make a difference on those prices too. Hmm. Did you? Did I also in in the vein of did I miss this, uh, or was it actually weird? Uh, they don't ever explain at the time that they learn that the name is Garland. Like just at some point that Shogo starts calling it Garland, and uh, yeah, because when the original guy got it, there was a garland around its its neck, and he said that. No, he, didn't, he didn't say anything. No. It's Christmas. No. It was a Christmas it gift. It was a Christmas gift. <laughs> no, there's just one of those it wasn't things. in a nice boot-up screen or one of those, or a conveniently labeled crate, because that feels like something another later OVA would do. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I don't, I don't remember seeing anything like that. There's, there's so much stuff, and like, I'm still super confused about like, the computer breaking in, and why are they? Why are they trying to break the computer? And why aren't others trying to? Why is why is he even trying to stop them from breaking in the computer? And with right. the like, what's it matter? Like you, you you've been you're living your McDonald's best life, and why'd you stop that, man? <laughs> yeah, right. Got a proper job. He works at McDonald's. He's got a proper job and a new girlfriend who happens to live with two other girls that he's been friendless forever, forever but had no idea that they live together. Well, those girls, he just met, right? That part I do remember. I was very confused. And by all that, of a sudden, they're best yeah. friends. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It seemed like they were just kind of like girls that they he met him and his other buddy, who quite literally only shows up again when um, as a gag, right? When they were when they were showing off like all the people getting conscripted, like one of that that buddy, that Mohawk buddy, was like <laughs> suddenly all gung ho about it. Or my, yeah, my dark complete, gag, yeah, course, right, for sure. So, yeah, but I mean, I guess suffice to say, the plot is certainly all over the place. It's still more more comprehensible than Birth, at least. Yes, but it's definitely still not the the pinnacle of of storytelling. But I mean, again, it wasn't originally intended to be a TV series, so I feel like the pacing being a little bit rapid and and breakneck kind of is justified because you know it was already like most of this was already written, so they wanted to yeah. try to get it all in there. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, did a pretty good job. Like Macross, it's also a little all over the place because you had a very young animation team given a lot of freedom. Sure, yeah, yeah, but this time they actually assembled something. Overall, the final product was very cohesive in in art and animation style. I would say at least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean you. Yeah, I mean, they apparently, a lot of the team was rolled right into this, the Artland team, after, from Do You Remember Love, so. And it, it shows. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't quite have Do You Remember Love production values, but it's pretty darn close in a lot of places. Yeah. We're, we're coming up here at the end, um, so just give some, think of some final thoughts here. I, I'll just go with my one final thought that kind of piggybacks off of what we were just talking about is um, as we're watching these old OVAs 
um, in kind of order. I'm getting this kind of interesting impression of like the 70s, you know, or before the 80s is like the um, commercial animation and everything, you know, and then the 80s is like the beginning of the um, the fans as doing the animation. And you can kind of see, I get this feeling of like the fans coming in to do things the way that they want to do this to make the things that they want and kind of learning how to do that and make things successful. Um, so you yeah, kind of see these stumblings of like birth to Megazone to um, Project Echo, right? Like, I think that's really cool to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can definitely see the evolution of anime made by fans of what was had happened in 70s anime and kind of trying to take it further and in all sorts of different directions and figure out and a lot of just would this be cool let's put it in both in yeah. birth and in this well and that that was our description of of bubblegum crisis was the does this look cool <laughs> all right it's in yeah right and like Bubblegum Crisis, there's a heavily featured Streets of Fire reference at the beginning. <laughs> oh, yeah. Another, yeah. another completely 100% direct reference, too. Yes. Yep. Yeah, like they literally go and see Streets of Fire. <laughs> at some point, we may have to do an episode just on that movie. We've watched so many things influenced by it. And, <laughs> I mean, it's equally as much of a train wreck as some of the things influenced by it, but... It's a visually striking one. And obviously many of these people clearly went on to be absolute powerhouses in the industry, yeah. right? You have Shiro Sagisu, who's quite possibly, you know, top top three all-time most, you know, like memorable and recognizable and just phenomenal soundtracks across God's anime. We have Anno, who, you know, quite literally, you know, broke the industry at many points mm-hmm. in his career. Um, you know, no stranger to this show as well. Probably his like eighth or ninth mention, and <laughs> at that point in our in our twenty two episodes. So, um, and as you mentioned, Obituary Yuki goes on to have you know a a very you know make a couple of very successful franchises. So, I mean, right. how could you forget Heat Guy J? Heat Guy J, obviously, <laughs> right? I mean, come on, hey boy, looking for your soul, you know? Yeah, and Ishiguro, of course, had yeah. already been well-established going back to Star Blazer, or to Yamato. Right. I mean, that's why he, I, probably why he, he was kind of chosen to helm this, right? He kind of had, and he also... And uh, Macross. Macross, do you remember love? Yeah. Um, Macross and do you remember love, I should say. So, and so, yeah, I mean, it obviously, it shows that people that, you know, worked on this and, were, you know, we could see the, the, the passion to high quality carrying into the rest of their careers. Yeah. All right, guys. Final thoughts, Mike? I think this is worth watching, even if the plot is such a train wreck. And Anno's cut is pretty amazing. Or cuts, rather. Mm-hmm. Dylan, how about you? Uh, Yeah, definitely recommend either whatever whatever way. Retro Crush is cool, and if you want to do the other, do the other. But I, I, it's great. I've watched it like two or three times. It's really fun. Um, and then when you get to part two, there will be some uh, design changes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, also, um, you're probably not going to like it so much to change your legal name to Megazone, but one fan has. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right. It's not worth it. Uh, Nick, how about you? Yeah, completely worth a watch. I think it's, uh, despite the the flaws in the plot, everything else carries it pretty pretty darn well so uh definitely out of all of the older stuff we've we've talked about recently this comes with a pretty high recommendation from me yeah agreed on all that cool well uh with that um we are back now for the holidays after our our break for the holidays there um and hopefully we'll be back to our regular schedule uh our next episode we're planning on doing a kind of I don't know, end of the year awards show. Uh, the Kenzokis, the the Kenzokis, Kenzokis, it's been, it's been finalized. Ams, Amzukis, I don't know, whatever. We'll have some cheeky name, maybe. <laughs> um. All right. Well, stay tuned for that. Uh, 
Uh, and with that, this is AMO Kenzoku signing off. Ba-ra-ba. Ba-ra-ba.